Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. I am Rod Court, your host, the gatekeeper of the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable, the mystical, the magical, the macabre, New England's own Van Helsink, with me all the way across the state and the land of the East Bridgewater is the blonde bombshell herself, Ann Carrigan. Well, good evening. Oh, my goodness. I feel like we've been gone forever. <laughs> Well, but, we, did uh, su- we did survive our retreat together, so there you go. Yes, we did. Yep. Yeah. Dis- despite Van Helsing, we all got through it and uh, had a good time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it, was, actually, it was a fabulous weekend. Yeah, I had a blast. I really did. Uh, so anyways, we have a great show tonight. We have uh, a gentleman, uh, and, and he was director of a, a program I've always been curious about. I, I know a little bit about it, but he's going to tell us a lot more. And well, actually, it's going to be a, a really interesting night because he's doing, done a lot of stuff since the program ended. But anyways, without further ado, let me introduce to you uh, Dale Graff. Now, Dale, I, you have a lot of letters after your name. I sh- wasn't sure if I should put a doctor in front of it. No, I don't have a Ph.D., but I have lots of other degrees in physics and in engineering and some psychology. So I have a mixed spread of a background in terms of academics. But I like to hang on to the hat of the, the, the master's degree in physics because that's kind of what me going into the field of the uh, strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might wonder about that. But quantum physics is really strange when you really want to get right down to the, the basics of it. So quantum physics kind of set me up in a mindset to be open to the kinds of material you introduced the program with. Okay, very good. That's so awesome. uh, the, the program that started it all, at least your, your notoriety, I think, is the Stargate program. And when everybody hears Stargate, they always think, of course, of the TV show uh, with that nice little hoop that gives you black holes that takes you to all kinds of planets. But <laughs> you did go different places, but you didn't need any little magical loop to do that, did you? No, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting you brought that up. The, um, the term Stargate was a term that I actually coined. Uh, oh, really? about, yeah, it was about two-thirds of the way through the time frame that we were saying spans Stargate effort, which goes back in the beginning of the 1970s all the way up to 1995 when the official program was closed. But in the mid-'80s, about 1986, when I became the, um, the actual director-in-chief of the Stargate unit, which at that time was located at Fort Meade, Maryland, um, I created a new term for the activity, and this was standard practice to change code words every three or four years. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure what new name I would like to come up with. The uh, names that were in the official register didn't make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So one evening while driving home through the swamp that surrounded Fort Meade, it just struck me Stargate would be a good term for that. It's, it's symbolic. 
It represents reaching beyond you know the, the known abilities that we think we have. Mm-hmm. So I came up with uh, the term Stargate. It was accepted all the way through the uh, Secretary of Defense level because I had to get that kind of approval. Wow. Mm-hmm. And this this terminology occurred a year before I even heard of the uh, the program Stargate. So it had no huh. connection with that that media show. No connection. Huh. That's that's interesting. So first of all, uh, in order, let's put it in chronological order. What was what was Stargate and what was the goal of Stargate program? Okay, initially, the um, the objective of studying um, mental abilities that are generally referred to as extrasensory perception uh, started back in the 1970s when we wanted to when physicists at the Stanford Research Institute wanted to see if they were real or not. And so the whole purpose in the very beginning was the validation of the phenomenon. So one thing led to another. Uh, We were able to demonstrate a reality, not absolute proof, but a reality of it, that it was likely true, although we couldn't prove it scientifically with all the great statistics. So after that, um, the government people became more interested in it, the CIA, and later the Air Force and the Defense Intelligence Agency, and uh, we provided funds to look at it from the point of view of what can we do with it. If people have this ability, then how can we apply it in the in the government, uh, either operationally, like locating airplanes that are missing or ships or people, or actually um, obtaining intelligence data, you know, from the Soviet Union. Right. You know, the height of the Cold War, that was a big thing. So the program evolved from research um, into what can we do with it, can we apply it, and um, that became then the book of what's called the Stargate program, both a research effort to look into the phenomena and an applied part. Now, we, we used the term remote viewing uh, because at that time we were more interested in what can we, can people actually describe distant scenes, you know, like a, a secret complex in the Soviet Union. So we gave it the label, remote viewing, because it looked like we were looking remotely, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, thousands of miles away. And um, in reality, we were. (laughs) (laughs) So that's where the the name came from, remote viewing, and it replaced the term extrasensory perception because that was a more acceptable term in the government. We called it remote viewing. So we evolved from there and had two aspects, like like I said previously, yeah, the research part, uh, what is the phenomena, can we demonstrate it, can we find out more about how it works, and then what can we do with it? Wow. So now, how, re- how did you get involved in it? That's, that would be my next question. Well, uh, my interest in the field actually be, began uh, many years earlier, before I even, be, be, even heard of the term, um, remote viewing or the, the research that was being performed uh, at the Stanford Research Institute in the early 70s. In, in, the, in the late 60s, uh, I was assigned to Hickam Air Force Base. And at that time, I was working for the Air Force in, in the intelligence section. And my job at Hickam was more of an air defense role um, to help predict uh, what the uh, the threat was in Vietnam for airplanes. So it was during that assignment that I had an experience in the surf. 
that made me realize <laughs> that there's more to reality than what we think it is. And uh, it was a, a kind of a near-drowning experience, you might say. Oh. And um, some things happened there that, that were just not, not – I couldn't believe them. Uh, so after, after that experience, which, which was really quite startling, um, I ended up studying the topic. And is there such a thing as extrasensory perception? Can people really perceive things that, that are beyond ordinary senses? And um, this led me to the Honolulu Library, and I found a lot of research that had been going on that I never heard of before, and it, from a scientific point of view. And uh, the, key, the key research I found was the work of Dr. Ryan at Duke University in the 1930s and 40s. He called it ESP, extrasensory perception. But they were only using cards, right. people in the order of cards. So that led me into, into the topic. And I became extremely interested in it because it, it, it gave me a handle. It gave me a way to think about what, what I, and as I learned later on, many others have also experienced in different ways, in different times and formats. And by chance, uh, the job I had when I returned to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where I was then, that was my home base after Vietnam, um, I was actually responsible for preparing uh, trends and forecast documents about Soviet developments out 10 years or more. And I came across Soviet work on ESP. And I wrote that up and, uh, as a, a potential topic for the commander to follow. He liked it, assigned me a responsibility to keep uh, tracking it. And at that time, unbeknownst uh, to me, Harold Putoff, the, a principal physicist at SRI, who was researching remote viewing, uh, came to our place looking for funding. And when I say our place, I mean the Foreign Technology Division at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Um, and he, our commander liked his briefing and decided to provide funding for it um, and assigned me the you know, contract manager. So now I became directly involved with, with supporting and managing and overseeing remote viewing research. So that's sort of how I got into it at an official level, but I got there because I had this strong interest from an experimental, an experience that it was really hard to define. So, so it was a series of things that happened. You call it synchronicity too. That's another yeah. term I like. You may I have love heard that about word. that. I think that's a great yeah. word. I use that a lot. <laughs> People yeah. go, "What's yeah. that?" <laughs> yeah, a lot of happened that you, you how did how did part a happen and then when you, you have no idea that part b the missing piece right around the corner you didn't know it was there but you stumble upon it mm -hmm. so you know there's some strange things happen and uh, we call them strange but when we think about the abilities that we have of perceiving beyond our ordinary senses then some of these unusual incidents are not, are not that strange. They're just a natural part of the universe. We just don't, don't have them, don't understand them, or don't experience them frequently enough to say, oh, it's too commonplace. Yeah. So they, there's still a lot of, a uh, huge amount of mystery here, of course. Mm -hmm. what, if you don't mind me asking, what happened? Um, so you had this near drowning incident. I mean... I knew you were going to ask did, about that. Did I, <laughs> I mean, did you save, did someone save you? Did you save yourself? What happened? <clears throat> Actually, I hadn't, 
it was an experience that I couldn't really talk about for many years, like 20 mm-hmm. or 30 years. It's sort of a powerful experience where I was involved in saving someone. Oh. And, and when Annie Jacobson wrote her book, which is just now out on the marketplace called Phenomena, um, that experience is in there. I finally decided to go ahead and, and you know, go public with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was an experience basically where I found somebody that I in a surf that was being pulled out in a riptide. Oh. And I, I should not have known that person was out there or that anybody was out there. Mm-hmm. And I, I just was drawn to a certain spot uh, in, in a, a very surface, wind-blown situation, high waves. Uh, there's no way I could have known or seen anybody in that under those conditions. Right. Not without my glasses, because my vision at that time was 2,500. So I, I couldn't really see much, mm-hmm. <laughs> very far. Somehow I swam, or I managed to swim toward that individual, not knowing she was there, and uh, got to her just as she was sinking. So it, it was quite a dramatic thing. And then getting back to shore was another experience. Oh, I can only imagine. Which uh, I had to, of course, get out of the riptide. Mm-hmm. And for anyone that lives along the coast, you know how to do that. You just go parallel to the shore, oh, hope right. you can get out of it. Uh, I, was able, I was able to do that, but then getting back was really tough because of the kind of storm-like condition that was coming in. Mm. And that, that's when I kind of had what you might call an out-of-body experience. Right. And that, that is where your perception shifts to something other than what you see through your normal vision. You know? So now I had a perception of being uh, elevated, looking down on two people who were trying to come back. Because the woman that I found was basically unconscious, could not swim. So it's a struggle, of course, getting oh, yeah. that person. Yeah, and not to mention trying to get me back, too. So there was a <laughs> that's terrible incredible. dilemma. Yeah. So that's, I don't want to go too far in this, but because it's detailed in, in that book. But that's, not- that's fundamentally what, what happened. And it was so dramatic that you know, it made me totally alter my ideas of, of reality. And uh, when I returned from that assignment, I actually dropped out of some academic programs I was in for further degrees, uh, just so that I could devote as much time as I could to, to looking into this phenomenon. And it led me into various avenues of psychology and parapsychology and abnormal psychology and and trying to get grounded in in what's called normal psychology, and which was almost at that time a mistake because the um, the, the standard definition that we used in the manuals for uh, uh, for evaluating mental illnesses were that if you believed in ESP, uh, you, that's a form of schizophrenia or something like that. <laughs> oh wow! It was, it was not a very friendly time to, to uh, yeah. be about. <laughs> You know, even talking about ESP mm-hmm. in in the traditional academic formal circles. You know, of course, as you and I know, uh, there are a lot of people have these experiences and they continue to. But you know, 30, 40 years ago, it's a little difficult in in most areas of this country to. Uh, to Psychology, be- though, is not an exact science in in itself, and yeah. it. it and I think in the future we'll see a lot of flaws that what we what we study and believed in psychology, what's accepted as a normal psychology, will, you know, 
be uh, looked at as like almost putting leeches on it. On <laughs> yeah, there's there's been change, tremendous changes, in, even in the past yeah. few decades, actually, in in terms of re- redefining or reevaluating the the perspective of certain situations. I'm not saying that extrasensory perception and, and re- now, of course, what we call remote viewing or premonitions, you know, precognition, and mm-hmm. I can go on and list a bunch of other terms that are used here. Um, it doesn't mean that this is universally accepted oh, um, no. in the conventional areas. But, you know, for, for people that I meet with or talk to frequently, and I do quite a number of workshops, uh, not mm-hmm. as much as I used to. I just I try to focus more on writings right now. But whenever I do this, there's always a good chunk, a good portion of the people that say, yeah, uh, I had those experiences years ago. I might still have them. Uh, I just really didn't have anybody to talk to openly about them. You know? and, and then they say, well, no, no, I'm not alone. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like I'm not. <laughs> and, you know, Dale, you know, that's, that's the same thing in the, uh, uh, as far as the paranormal field, as far as ghosts and spirits and stuff like that. Uh, years ago, nobody would talk about them, but uh, people are much more open about them now, and there are a vast number of, uh, of experiences that people have had in, in the spirit world, too. So, yeah, yeah once and you break... know, my interest in remote viewing from a formal scientific, what can we do with it kind of thing? Can we prove mm-hmm. it? Can we use it? also led me into a study of that area as well. It's almost impossible not to get into it. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I've done some work in that area with groups. Um, I've been working off and on, not, frequently, not, not that often, but a few times a year, with a group that does investigate um, what might be called haunted or poltergeist areas um, using instrumentation to see if anything and, and the instruments might indicate a you know, presence of some anomaly. Um, and I've been kind of working with what's called random event generators. And, uh, right. and the idea behind that device is a quantum physics device. Uh, that The only way, and if, it's, if it's shielded properly, the only way that the output can change from its, uh, its random zeros and ones, <laughs> which is a digital way of saying... Uh, a lot of data points yeah. that the only way they can all go off random is if something totally outside of the realm of electromagnetics or heat or vibration affected it. So that brings us into the idea of a quantum field and that the mind itself interacts with this quantum field, which may be more than simply a hypothetical construct, but an actual field. So if the mind can do that, uh, the brain-mind system, and there's a device that you're looking at or focusing on that can only respond to a quantum input of some kind, even if it's unknown. And you get an interaction that should tell you something. Right. You know, and there, there are groups that work with this, this, this kind of phenomenon, the Global Consciousness Group in uh, Princeton, New Jersey, for example. So yeah. here's another area, you know, which I sort of backed into many years later after I um, retired. Uh, from the government, um, and I continued my work with remote viewing uh, in both the conscious state, which is sort of what remote viewing is. It's, it's impressions that you receive of a, of a extrasensory nature while you're awake and relaxed. Um, but I've also spent a lot of time 
uh, I, I did early on, but even more so in recent years, with was the dream state. Dream state I, yeah. I find that individuals are not too familiar or don't have a lot of waking state experiences have a lot easier time when they're asleep or dreaming because, first of all, you're already relaxed. Secondly, your conscious mind is already out of the way, <laughs> and yeah. the dreaming mind is free to roam. So it does it does that very nicely, even in from an extrasensory point of view. Uh, the the only problem, going back a little bit to what you were talking about with the the uh, digital thing, is is that the spontaneous uh, cases are uh, are much more difficult to prove. Uh, without because you don't have the laboratory controls you do it in a laboratory so it, that, that's always going to have some type of a doubt with it yes now of course now in the laboratory when you do have instruments and of course at Princeton particularly through um, the um, the laboratory that that was there for several decades too which closed uh, about a year ago that's a shame um, yeah, but there that was in the laboratory, and they did have a very controlled um, activity. It was a very formal research program, and they did get results, highly statistically significant um, results. So that, that's been done. But many people don't like to work in the laboratory because they feel it, it decreases on the spontaneity of it, and it, right. it, it makes it less comfortable. Okay, well, I guess true, and um, I find that when I do work with people, it is best to uh, set up the experiment. If you're doing experiments, to set up the experiment, which you can control or regulate or, or know that there's no way anyone can get the answer that you have or the picture that you're trying to describe or the scene that you haven't designated as a target. So if you can control that, and the person that you're working with, no matter where he or she is, can describe it accurately. That's a pretty good experiment, even though right. it's not in the laboratory. It, it, just, it just takes time to accumulate numbers, which is what the, the statistical people always look for, um, to, to say whether or not it really was above chance or not in the long run. But in the short run, you get some spectacular results, and you don't need to be statistically oriented to know that Hey, this this can't be a chance event, you know. <laughs> Something so, uh, happened. <laughs> we we are coming up towards the break, so before okay. we we get to the break, and, and we're going to talk about what you've been doing since uh, Stargate. But could you tell us a little bit about the findings of Stargate? What were, were the findings of this research project? Well, there's both research and applications, but but the the research part, which which continued on for several decades, the finding was that there is a repeatable phenomenon. You just have to have the right setup. You have to have people that have a, a, a developed or proven talent to begin with. You don't want to just pull random people off the streets. That works, but you don't, you don't get very far in the statistical world. So what the finding was, yes, there are people that can do this repeatedly, not every time, but enough to show um, a, a trend. And, and some, some statistical people even say, have that we have achieved statistical validation. So that that was the finding. You can this can happen. Now, in terms of what the phenomena is, we eliminated a lot of things. You know, we proved pretty conclusively that it was not electromagnetic because it could be shielded. We did experiments into submarines at deep deep water and uh, all kinds of shielding. Um, where people or the or the target was in a shielded room, for example. 
So we, we eliminated the magnetics, and we backed into, well, quantum physics is about the only thing left, and this is a huge thing left. Really. I shouldn't say the only thing. So we quantum narrowed down the phenomenon to, to having a quantum physics component. So that was a gain. Now, in terms of the people involved, um, we looked at we looked at profiling, the psychology. And, you know, do, do some people do better than others? Yeah, there are some trends there. Um, so it was just a, a matter of accumulating a lot of data to show that there's a phenomenon, and there and there are things that that can explain it partly, and things that are still totally unknown. And in terms of applications, we showed that yes, there are times when this does really the only way you can really crack a, a significant problem, uh, finding a hostage or a missing airplane or doing something like that. That this is the only phenomenon, the source of information that that can work in cases like that. Okay. And we have cases like that. So yeah, we, we did a, them. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. We have yeah. about two minutes to break, and we do have a quick question from the. The uh, chat room of the Parax chat room, which uh, related to something said earlier, can a person develop psychic or remote skills or must they be born with it? And you mentioned it a little bit. Uh, so what, what would your answer be totally? No, okay. I'll do real quick on this and we can detail it later more. But right. <clears throat> my answer is it's a mixture. Some people are off and running at the, at the opening gate. They, they can do it from the beginning. Okay, no question. Now, others... Duke are slow. It's like a piano player. You play chopsticks, and maybe that's as far as you get. But um, we believe that you can develop a, a sufficient ability through practice and intention. The key word is intention, dedication, just like in any skill. Uh, now, you're not maybe not going to go out and become a psychic detective, but you can certainly develop it enough to um, really help you own survival your own self your, your own efficiency you know and that's what I, i'm going to be going over in the workshop on, on the weekend when i'm up there so my, my it can be developed and enhanced so i truly believe that because i've seen the evidence of that okay so we're up on the break and uh, as you mentioned you will be up here in uh, andover on the weekend of may 5th through the 7th at yes. circles of wisdom so uh nice. if you want to so anyways, it's time for the break. You're listening to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Ann Carrigan and Ron Koch. And our very special guest today is Dale Graff, uh, former director of Stargate. And uh, we'll be right back after the following messages. first live radio broadcast from Haunted House way back in 1936 for the BBC. Now, thanks to the wonders of modern technology, I am still able to keep abreast of 21st century ghost hunting by listening to Ghost Chronicles International on Togginet, Para-X Radio, The Ghost Channel, and even on something called a podcast. Two splendid chaps host it. One is an American who calls himself New England's own Van Helsing although I have discovered his real name is Ron Kolek. The other is Stephen Parsons, and he's a paranormal scientist. Well, mustache, I'm required elsewhere on something called a K2. But don't forget, I'll be listening in every Tuesday from 8 o'clock in Great Britain and 3 o'clock on the American Eastern Seaboard. I trust you will join me there.
Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. Welcome back to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Ron and Ian and our special guest this evening, Dale E. Graff, Director of Project Stargate. And we're back. Dale? Everybody okay, I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> wake up, uh, wake back up. On. I, I, the music was so captivating, I, I got started drifting away. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is actually a theme, theme from Van Helsink. <laughs> Oh boy! How about that? Anyway, that okay. All our guests, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> as well as I do. Uh, but anyway, so uh, you are coming up here. Uh, the program ended, and, and you went on and started doing a series. So you've written a couple of books, first of all, and uh, you also do a series of workshops. So, um, what led you that path after after you left Stargate? Okay. Uh, uh, repeat your question. I didn't quite hear that last question. Sorry. About okay, that. that's that's all right. I, I, Stargate ended, so you you've accumulated all this curiosity during the program, and you decided to apply it uh, yeah. by writing a couple of books and yeah. also uh, doing some workshops. Uh, yes. And so, what what is the goal of of uh, this line of work. Oh, oh, go. Okay, I just missed that word. I was, I always thought you said gal, <laughs> and I knew that wasn't right. Okay, <laughs> after after I retired, I really had, of course, freedom. You know, <laughs> retired. Um, you know, I can do whatever I want to do. So I spent the first several years after retirement focusing on book writing, and I did uh, get two books out. Published in 1999 and 2000, one was called Tracks in the Psychic Wilderness, and the other is called River Dreams. Um, and they were at that time, I couldn't write a lot about the government program because because it really was not yet declassified totally, even though it was announced in 1995 and on that program by Ted Koppel, a Nightline, oh, a yeah. news program. So, uh, so I did write two books. I drafted a few others, and I, I still have them here ready to go. I, I just haven't been waiting for the right time. So after writing those books, I, I decided to go into um, giving presentations 
you know, done a lot uh, in the past you know, couple of decades, and doing doing workshops and in the Washington D.C. area. Even though I've traveled around, including Florida and other places, I just enjoyed working with people uh, and, and having them understand what we were doing, what the phenomena could do, could not do, and motivated them to apply it in their own life. So. I did that, and but at the same time, I continued independent research, and I found a few people that had certain particular talents that I liked, that I was interested in exploring further, and I've been working with um, a person from Florida, that's a thousand miles from where I live here in Pennsylvania, so we have this nice distance factor. So whenever I do a project, I can say, hey, that was a thousand miles right there from the beginning, you know. But we've been working on the future. So the past um, five or ten years, I've been really looking at time. Um, and what is time? And what is time a kind of illusion? And uh, we did some work. It spanned a couple of years. I was able to get it summarized, presented at a symposium last year on quantum physics, looking into a term called retrocausation. Uh, a quantum physics term um, implying that the future can reach backwards in time or that signals from the future can go backwards in time, uh, which is contrary to common sense, but the laws of physics don't disallow it. So we set up some experiments that actually uh, help demonstrate that information from the future uh, can it seems to go backwards in time. Uh, And got that published, and that's going to be coming out in a American Institute of Physics publication in in a couple of weeks. Sounds like a Star Trek episode. Yeah. (laughs) So when you think about it, information flowing backwards in time isn't conceptually that different from what people have been talking about from for centuries the term premonition is has to do with information from from the future only we looked at it more from the point of view something about the future already exists and uh, we're just picking up the signal from it so it's a matter of perspective or perception on how you look at it but the idea of retrocausation or something about events in the future sending a signal backward to us in time it fits in with some of the the more leading edge concepts of quantum physics so so it's a, it's a door it's a way to get in to some formal um, talk uh, using quantum physics language so, it, so that's kind of what I've been looking at and I still continue to do that and um, the, the way I, I came up with this idea, and it's not new, uh, parapsychologists have been studying precognition for, for half a century or a century or more. But the, the information that they define as in the future already exists. It just hasn't been, it was, only, it was randomly selected later. Uh, but the, the information is still out there somewhere. So even now, they might call it precognition, uh, but it, may, it doesn't really, it's not really from the future per se. Hmm. So I had the idea um, uh, working with photographs that, w- that would be published in a newspaper three to four days ahead. Uh, and when I found out that a certain picture always was printed in the same page, 
um, called Around the World, uh, and it could be anything. It was always taken a day um, before the photo was printed. I set up the experiment to, to begin to, to, to perceive that picture three days ahead. So we, we were successful. So that means that the photograph did not exist at the time we had the experiment. So and it had not been taken yet. The event had not yet occurred. So it was a good way of demonstrating precognition with material that doesn't exist anywhere at the time you do the experiment. So it was a pretty clean precognitive experiment. And I think the idea of retrocausation, that we tapped into a signal out there in the future, coming backwards in time, uh, to to us, to, well, to, to the person that, that was a perceiver, my colleague in Florida, uh, and she was very good at perceiving this what I call this future signal. And we were able to sketch the perceptions and, and have independent judges look at them and, and make assessments as to, uh, you know, does this correlate or does it not correlate? And uh, we were able to do a statistics on it, and uh, it, it, turned out, it turned out to be pretty good. So I'm continuing, I'm continuing the same kind of experiment right now. So but you can't really rush them. Uh, I do one a week. I set up one a week. <laughs> and, uh, so it takes time you know, to accumulate a lot of data because I'm working with people that have full-time jobs and they have other things in their life. They're busy. Right. Um, and it's, it's difficult to set aside a time when you want to do this, this kind of project. Um, and now you can sit down and, and grind out a bunch uh, if, if you want, but I think I think the reliability and the accuracy goes down if you start enforcing it. You know, in the Stargate program, we really didn't have much choice. You know, we were dedicated to the task, and we had a place set aside, and uh, most people had a certain time frame when they could do their call, what we called the remote viewing session. Uh, some people were better in the morning, some in the afternoon. Uh, but but we, we never exceeded a certain number um, per week or, or even, well, per day even. Uh, and we, we never did a session late in the day because uh, people had to drive on, a, on the busy Washington expressways and the beltways. And the one thing you don't want to do when you do a session, uh, remote viewing or any kind of deeply relaxed session, is to jump in the car and get into traffic. <laughs> you're, still, you're still a little bit spaced out, you know. Right. So you want to be alert in the real world. Right. So, you know, you have to go through a cool-down phase, we call it. You know, hey, get right. back, you know. Right. Be catched where we were before, yeah. Come back <laughs> to Earth. Come back to Earth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah kind of like that. Yeah, not, 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 it's the opposite of being me up, Spock. is being yeah. down, Spock. <laughs> Yes, something like that. I have a question about the whole Stargate project because it seems so unusual to me that uh, the government would um, would actually, you know, spend their time and their money um, following this avenue. Um, Yeah. I mean, like to us, it makes sense. The Russians did it. I think. I, I'm well, that just, was part of the rationale, no doubt yeah. about it. Yeah, I, I'm just—it surprises me that it's, it was what a 20-year project. Yeah, Is sure. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And now it varied. You know, sometimes there was a lot of activity. Other times, we had to be extremely careful. The, the, the political situation wasn't good. We were lucky to get funding to continue, for example. Right. So it it, uh, it was up and down, up and down. And you know, it's a terrible thing to say, but the the, the fate of the program had a huge dependence on who was the commander at the time, or Absolutely. what kind of support we had in Congress at at the time. Right. But we always survived. Not always, but we we survived mainly because when push came to shove, we were able to demonstrate good results. So you had the they were the kind of results that that a statistician would marvel at. That's a different a different a different way in which you have to go to to work with the phenomena. But in terms of practical uh, use, uh, we had enough results year after year that that uh, we did get the nod to keep going. You know. Wow. So were the so, results were the results you were getting? Um, did they uh, were they beneficial? Did they stop something that needed to be stopped? Um, I I I don't know if you can give any kind of example or. Yeah, I'll, I'll go into that a little bit. <clears throat> now, in the intelligence community, we have what we call INTs, INTs, intelligence sources, mm-hmm. and uh, the 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 way intelligence works is. No, no, no single int or intelligence source should be a standalone all by itself. You, you need to back it up with other sources. So, from the point of view of it being a, um, a an assisting thing or co- collaborating on other ways in which you you could get your problem, we, we did we did uh, help. We didn't solve um, many of the situations directly, but we did help. Now we did have some cases which was standalone, uh, where we were able to because there was nothing else would work. Uh, we were able to find uh, a fugitive that was on the run uh, internationally, unwanted, uh, and it was our data that actually led to his apprehension. Wow! Uh, because somebody was actually willing to to risk it and uh, and tell the law enforcement people what part of the country to go to and. And and then of course they didn't lead to it directly, but they had to be on the lookout. Uh, and of course in law enforcement they have bolas, you know, be on the lookout. So we were <laughs> able to get a bola set up in a very specific area, and um, a week or two later, an alert policeman spotted the fugitive. So wow. so it, it demonstrates how we helped. We we didn't say hey, go go to this exact spot and knock on the door, but you go to this. <laughs> and keep looking and uh, in the case of an abducted general uh, in Italy who was abducted oh, in 1982 by a group was directly that. involved in that one and uh, in fact I was sent to Italy as part of the search team Ooh. and uh, our data turned out to be pretty good it would never have gone to the exact apartment but it would have been enough to, as, as people that looked at the data later said to, to really help narrow down the possibilities uh, so that that to me is is a success. It, it didn't actually lead to the the actual saving of the man, but it really helped uh, support the idea or the con- the, the information that, that pointed in that direction. And, and this is how intelligence data should work, you know. Uh, and then we had other other sources, other times when we had technical data that we were going for that that we were able to prove later uh, our sources, the remote viewing sources, 
were the only ones that had the uh, the, the correct idea behind what was being tested. That's amazing. Uh, as, as we were able to then verify later on through through satellite photography, uh, like like uh, one individual was able to predict um, oh. unexpectedly a huge submarine that. Uh, then was seen at a certain time, at a certain, you know, a, a couple, a couple of months ahead of time in a certain area, and and the photography that was then obtained at that time proved that hey, it did show up there. So you know, it's it's a way of, of alerting other sensors, other ways of looking and say, look here, not there, or an airplane search in in uh, in Africa um, redirected the search effort. And they were able to um, locate the plane with, with the help of um, some other incidents that happened. But had it not been for the redirection, they would not have That's located incredible. the plane in time. So I can go on. But these are the kinds of things that we did. You know, you can't do this kind of thing day after day after day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had enough over time that really should shout out to people that, that, that question the, the validity or the usability of the data mm-hmm. take another look and you know I have some of this information in in my book River Dreams um, and Annie Jacobson who just now published Phenomena which is getting a huge uh, visibility uh, is, is reciting re, re, uh, or re reviewing some of that material that I had in my earlier book, and it's in her book, too. So there are incidents like this. And, of course, we found that we don't want to, in our program, we didn't want to just go for the, the tall pole, you know, the, the huge mm-hmm. spectacular one. And intelligence data is a bump and grind thing, you know. It takes right. a long time, and sometimes the projects aren't terribly exciting, but, you know, they're, they're there. So mm-hmm. we're able to accumulate a lot of the small projects as well, the important ones, but not as important as the uh, as, as, as saving somebody's life, uh, right. like the general. Life. So, so we, why did why the, did they end the program? Oh, here we go. I tell you, this is, <laughs> I can really get going on this one. Uh-oh. I'll start off with politics. Ever hear that word? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the lot. people that. The people that were actually in charge of the CIA at the time, uh, and also in our organization, because Stargate, toward the the latter phase of Stargate, was actually under the control of the Department of Defense in the the organization, um, the Defense Intelligence Organization, the DIA. Um, And uh, the the people that became the, the chiefs, the commanders, had a history of not either believing, accepting, or whatever their rational was. They, they were, they were st- simply antagonistic toward the whole field. Oh. And so that certainly didn't help. It didn't help us get through the congressional cycle. And they had a review toward the end, but they only looked at the last couple of years of the program when things weren't really uh, going top-notch anyway. Plus, right. the the um, the Berlin Wall came down. The Soviet Union was quite open, so yeah. there was a period of time when it, it looked like we we didn't have a clear enemy anymore. Because now we're, we're kind of getting back into the old Cold War status. That's right. right. Yeah. So so anyway, there were all these different factors that were downsizing, and people that were with the program a long time had retired. 
uh, like myself. I'm okay. not saying that's what made the difference, but it certainly didn't. There were really some good people in the program that that went elsewhere. Um, so we shouldn't and, blame you. No, don't blame me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take some heat, though. I have. So whatever the case, you know, it's not one factor um, that led to the closure. Um, so it, the closed it, and uh, I, I think a lot of us on the program were ready to uh, to move on anyway. You know, we did right. what we could. We we were able to have some some good results, and uh, really we went through a learning curve. Um, things we probably would do differently, but you know, we we had successes and we had things that didn't work out. Like in in any, I I, I have to call it exploratory program, which is sort of was, um, because we were out there. Uh, looking into an area that not not many people were taking seriously. Now there were parapsychologists that did research at a, on a laboratory level, uh, but nothing of the, of the you know, scope that we were interested in. We, you know, we wanted to actually understand it and it make this very useful um, for a number of reasons. So um, not not just intelligence data collection, but but helping out. You know. Uh, right. I, I, know we're, I know we're running down in time, and I, I want to talk to you a little bit about what you'd do, be doing up here. But okay. I have a question that's off a little bit uh, from the program. It is that you mentioned that we could get messages from the future. Would it be possible to get do it the other way around, get messages from the past? Yeah, you know, it, it's. I would think so. You know, I really the whole thing about time, I'm becoming really – Suspicious about time, that that our we have this arbitrary past, present, future label for time, and um, I don't. If we can get them from the future, then whatever this past is, they can certainly tap into that. And I'm not talking about uh, remote viewing uh, a history book and reading a chapter that is just now about the past. You know, I'm, I'm talking about going back in, in time, right. uh, wherever information is stored. Uh, you know, some Akashic record or something like that. So say, may, yeah. maybe the past, maybe the past is in some kind of cosmic or hologram or whatever, uh, and so might be the future information. Uh, so yes, whatever it is, I, I think something along that line, however now, you label, it, is possible. I, now I, I this is just vaguely familiar, so I, I'm just going to ask if you've heard about it, but. I believe there was some university that was able uh, to send something either into the future. I believe it was a, a particle using uh, lasers or something. I, I can't remember. It's just so big. But I, I did remember uh, seeing a, 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 uh, an article on it. And uh, are you familiar with that at all? Where they well, right, that, that was a, um, a photon. That, yes, uh, photon. Thank you very much. That somehow moved through barriers and uh, from point A to point B instantaneously. So this goes to one of the concepts in quantum physics that, that I think is a link in for understanding psi or ESP or remote viewing, um, what's called non-locality. And the idea behind this is that in quantum physics, uh, is a phenomenon known as non-local phenomenon, um, where particles that are coupled in some way, or some quantum physics type of way, polarization or spin or whatever, and if one particle is moved to wherever you want to move it, you know, you know it's far away, the other end of the universe, 
and and you tweak the one that you still have, its partner will respond instantly. Now this is this, this beyond speed of light. This is instantaneously. They've right. coupled together, so that's non-locality. So so the, this has been demonstrated in laboratories at, at smaller scales, of course. So that is part of the experiment that I think you you were referring to. Amazing stuff. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh it's more and I think there's more and more going to be coming out on this because it could relate to to you know in the future uh, something about quantum computation, a new phase of, of computing that will really uh, jumpstart or jump shift the kind of computing capability that even now exists. So, uh, you know, this is in the infancy, but I think it's the next generation of computers re- relying on this phenomena like this, uh, this non-locality phenomenon. So, you know, quantum physics has really opened a door to some strange things, but they're, they're ending up to being very practical. <laughs> huh. So um, as long as the door is open, I'd like to look into it and see what, what it can tell us about our own self, our own psychic abilities. You know, this this it screams for a connection has got to be there. And, um, and there are individuals that look at, at the, the brain mind and the connectivity uh, from that, from a quantum field point of view. And, uh, and I, I think that's kind of one of, one of the next steps in, in uh, how we can advance the understanding of this phenomenon. Now, I understand you're going to be here at May 5th or the 7th up here in Andover, Massachusetts at Circles of Wisdom. Uh, yes. Can you tell us a little bit of, about what you're going to be doing up here? Right. Okay. There, the, uh, there will be a, a free lecture on Friday evening. Uh, I'll go through a number of things, and not just the workshop, but a little bit of the history of the phenomenon and the program, you know, the Stargate program, and uh, the books I have, uh, which are out of print, but I'll have some with me anyway. I still... Oh, right. Okay. And it's just the, pizza from the dead. It's okay. The workshop... <laughs> Uh, we'll we'll be focusing in several parts. Of the the one focus will be on 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 uh, explaining how we can activate our own uh, conscious state abilities, uh, whether called ESP or remote viewing. And I have exercises to go through that are very basic that help people understand how they can begin looking and and, and exploring their own remote viewing abilities. So I have the background of that and exercises that help demonstrate that. Then the second part goes into the um, the dream state side, and I explain how anyone can can uh, intend and and um, expect to have uh, dreams that relate to the unknown, whatever it's a target or or the future or a precognitive uh, experience that they might have that week or whatever. So I explain how you can routinely experience. ESP or, or precognitive experiences in dreams. So that, that's a main part of, of also. Uh, and then I also just wrap this up with, or tie together with what does this all mean in terms of the, the spectrum, what we might, we might call the size spectrum. How does this relate to intuition? How does this relate to subliminal perception? Because there is a role for subliminal perception in this phenomenon. And, of course, synchronicity, I mentioned earlier. Uh, I see precognition 
uh, the ability to be open to experiences from the future or about the future uh, as being really central on, on how synchronicity, these unusual or, or meaningful coincidences occur. I also talk about the healing side. Lucid dreams or dreams lead to lucid dreaming and uh, I've had experiences in that direction uh, as well. Some of my early childhood memories are lucid dreams, so I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with the lucid dream community. Dale, you're not going to believe it. We've run out of time. <laughs> oh, we okay. Well, anyway, it gives you an idea. Okay, I hope that's right. sufficient. Yeah, well, and, we're, and I'm going to be talking about it in the, in the next week uh, during the other shows too, as well. So this has been Dale Graff. Uh, he, if you want more information, go to circlesofwisdom.com or nine seven eight four seven four eighty ten. Nine seven eight four seven four eighty two ten. Dale, thank you so much. It was thank very you, Dale. intriguing. Very okay. interesting. Okay, great. Okay, be open. <laughs> <laughs> we will. Good night. Take care. Right, Good night, bye. everyone. From ghoulies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us good luck.